And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. This is the Reality Radio Network on Telstar 5 Transponder 5 and on the Internet at realityradionetwork.com. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's edition of the Q-Files. For the record, it is the 15th of February, the year is 2006. And I'd like to draw your attention, while we're waiting for uh, Tom Horn to come on, to some of the stories that we've posted on our website. One of them is a flashback, which is the Pentagon plan to create mutant super soldiers. Now, for most of you, you probably are sometimes having a, a difficult time accepting some of the stuff that Tom and I talk about, transgenics, psychotronics and everything, but I'd encourage you to take a look at that because it was not only just, uh, you know, on uh, uh, one specific story two, three years ago, it was also in the Christian Science Monitor and other publications carried it. So in lieu of what Tom Horn and I have been talking about, I would draw everyone's attention to our story of the day, too, on my website, uh, stevequail.com, the Pentagon plan to create mutant super soldiers. Now, with me tonight is Tom Horn, and Tom is obviously going to uh, share some things with us that will be ultimately uh, so prophetic but also incredibly disturbing that Jesus said if the days weren't shortened, there'd be no flesh left alive. Hi, Tom. Hi, Steve. Thanks for inviting me back on. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Steve's going to adjust the volume a little bit. I'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing you. Let's talk, Tom, tonight about uh, where you'd like to go with the whole idea of psychotronics and the manipulation of the human genome, ultimately even the manipulation of animal genomes, a combination, and then throwing it in, a habitation for not only devils, but fallen angels. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we've, we've alluded to some of that, and, and uh, if, if at least by the second half of your show today we can... We can get to a couple of points that I would like to make about uh, what the far-reaching implications of some of this could be. And by the way, uh, I've been out all day today. I haven't had a chance to look at the Internet or check my emails or anything like that uh, except for one time today. And um, But I did get the uh, link that you sent me, and I think that's what you were referring to when I called in just now about the uh, Pentagon uh, creating super soldiers. And uh, is that is that the case? Yes. You were talking about that as I came on. Well, you know, and I had forgot about uh, about that article, but it goes it goes along um, perfectly with uh, some of the uh, information that we were uh, discussing the last time I was on the air about the about the National Institute of Health and Defense, and also DARPA, which was involved in both of these uh, cases, um, in, in that they have been now uh, for at least several years that we know of, Steve, uh, in investing heavily uh, U.S. tax dollars, and then it's ironic that guys like me and you pay taxes, and we wouldn't support this if we had a, if we had a choice in the matter, and yet uh, we're talking literally about the, the alteration 
of the uh, human species, because that, that article, the Pentagon plans to create mutant super soldiers, um, I thought it was great the way he starts out. It's almost as if he's setting up this scene from the, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, and then you, and then he makes you realize that he's not talking about, uh, you know, uh, any dark lord other than maybe Donald Rumsfeld or somebody inside the, the Pentagon or inside of, uh, uh DARPA. But it, it, it's astounding if your uh, listeners go and read that article that's on your website, uh, how that in about the middle of that article they start saying, um, the creation of super soldiers using the term creation is a, is an appropriate term. And not just fanciful rhetoric, because some of the research now underway, catch that, not theoretical research. We're talking two to three years ago when this article was first written. Some of the research now underway involves actually altering the genetic code of soldiers. And that goes along, of course, with what you and I have been talking about in terms of psychotronic warfare. And, uh, and I just appreciate so much you reminding me of that article. Well, I think that we've got to get through to everyone tonight. And again, Steve, if you could just give me a little more volume from Tom. Okay, Tom, so let's just, let's not even worry about the second half of the show. Let's work backwards tonight. Okay. Get to your bottom line and then we'll go back if we need to because again, I don't want to run out of time. Okay, I don't either. Well, uh, when, when, when last we left off, uh, we had just arrived at uh, what I was calling level three uh, in the rabbit hole and the uh, connection between transgenics and psychological or psychotronic warfare. And uh, what we had discussed so far on your program, Steve, number one, was recognizing that psychotronic warfare is real and that not only is it under development now, but like the article you have on your website today illustrates, it's been under development for a long time. In fact, that article, when I read it, he even said at that point that his investigative research had showed that this was under uh, development. Three years ago, it had been under development for a long time. Um, and, and this is a science. Uh, in particular, he's talking about transgenics, but he's talking about a military application for the use of transgenics to create super soldiers by changing them at the genetic level. Now, how do we bridge this gap between talking about uh, the transgenic alteration of, of the species or living organisms and how that might apply to psychological or psychotronic warfare, other than just a generic statement that says if the military has their hands in it, obviously it's got to be, uh, it has to be appropriate to both, uh, uh, discussions. Well, DARPA as well as the other agencies. Now, now define DARPA for people because I don't think everybody knows what DARPA is. Well, DARPA is the, uh, it, it, the, the long term is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency. And DARPA is essentially uh, a, uh, uh, well, it's been around, I think, something like maybe uh, 30 years now at least. But it is a branch of the government and also a branch of the military that receives significant funding, both in black and also white budgets uh, from the government, for the development for the development of uh, weapons technology. Now, this could be anything from um, airplanes and whatever, but, but DARPA also gives grants. That's why in the last couple of years when you've seen uh, a lot of these students from different universities and schools trying to develop 
these uh, robots that could win these races going through uh, the deserts of Arizona and Mexico and whatever, um, because DARPA is uh, kind of a oh, an agency of the government that can reach out to independent uh, developers and researchers who can help the government to solve sometimes some of the issues that haven't been solved inside of the government, and so they provide these grants for the development of military hardware. But there's 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 levels in DARPA, just like there are levels in the U.S. government and every other branch of our government and governments around the world that are uh, that are that are that are um, levels of the government that uh, it's easy for uh, guys like me and you and the other uh, members of the press to get information from them on where they are. But then there's these levels that are black levels, a SAPOC level stuff where. Things are being developed that obviously they have a good reasons not to be talking about these uh, in the in the public ear because you know in order to have a, 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 a safe country and a strong military it's necessary to also have secrets and so there are levels uh, within DARPA which we know nothing about but the, some of those some of those uh, research uh, levels inside of DARPA have been involved for quite some time uh, in research that uh, uses transgenic science to tinker with the genetic code of living organisms, animals, and humans, uh, and, that, and that there has been an interest for a long time now in not only developing super soldiers, such as this article you uh, posted refers to, and also which we wrote about in our book, The Aramon Gate, but... Um, I think something even beyond that, Steve, and that's, that, that's what we want to talk about tonight. Well, let's just go right there, Tom, and get to the bottom line. Again, we'll work backwards because okay. we'll be on together, you know, in the coming weeks and months and stuff. But let's get to absolutely, let's just give people the most, uh, I would say, this, the most clear view of how incredibly evil the future will become very quickly, or has already become. Has already become, and and certainly uh, probably to the extent uh, that would uh, that most of us couldn't comprehend um, things that if you and I talked about them, if we knew all of the levels and talked about them openly, the public simply would not be able to accept. And I got to uh, tell you something. I've been told by some very incredibly brave men. I once had a high-ranking military guy tell me. He said. Steve, some of this stuff has caused my men, and these guys are the bravest of the brave. Uh-huh. And he's told me point blank that uh, you know that once you once you see this stuff and really understand it, and as a Christian you experience the evil of it, it's turned some of his young men who had full heads of hair. They've literally turned white instantly. So you know we're not just making this stuff up, ladies and gentlemen. This is kind of like the realm of reality. And I believe, Tom, it's it's a very important time for you and I to be doing this show together because, again, Jesus stated that men's hearts are going to fail them for fear of looking after those things coming upon the earth. Right, coming upon the earth. Uh, and And what's coming upon the earth is that, first of all, you recognize that psychotronic warfare is a reality. One of the things that has troubled some of these soldiers that you're talking about is 
Uh, and most of your listeners can understand this, and we did talk about this on your first show, so I won't repeat it, but that the body is a computer. The body, the brain, it operates like a computer. There's chemical electrical activity in the brain and the nervous system, and, and these signals are sent rapid fire from the brain through the other parts of the nervous system and the cortex region of the brain. Uh, our retina and cornea of the eye process visual activity, and the, and these little hair cells in the inner ear uh, process auditory signals, and all of that is happening. And so that on the superficial level, psychotronic warfare is uh, simply the attempt to control or to debilitate uh, individuals uh, using weapons technology that's designed to disrupt or to distort information received by the body's senses, and therefore you can disorient a person or maybe even whole communities of people and keep them from being able to function normally. The second step, though, down the rabbit hole that we started talking about last week and which will take us to the third step, is recognizing, Steve, that there is also a spiritual element to psychotronic warfare. And this, I think, is probably the thing that frightens some of the guys uh, in the military, that very ancient spirits, very powerful spiritual forces, identified in the Bible as the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies that we talked about last time, that these spiritual forces also have an interest in controlling the earth's masses and, the and even the destiny of the world, and, uh, and, and that these forces can be brought into league with humans, brought in league with evildoers. Um, and that's biblical. And, and, that, and that when they are in league with earthly evildoers, they can and will, by the way, um, not only uh, invade the minds of men, not only invade their, their, their flesh in sense of possession, uh, but something beyond that, and we'll talk about it in just a, a second. Because I, I, something that popped into my head here I want to say very quickly, too, is that another thing that they do, according to the apocryphal book, Steve, is that they inspire ingenious weapons technology uh, among those who are willing to give themselves uh, over to them. And I know you know this, that in fact, that's even part of the history uh, of ancient texts surrounding the Watchers. Uh, part of the whole story about the Watchers was that they traded weapons technology to the enemies of God in exchange for uh, human DNA, which they then used for their own devious purposes. And, you know, what's fascinating about this is that if you go into the Hindu epics, and again, I, I you know, I try and build the case. This is so across all cultures, across all history. You go into that. And you are told that Gurkha has the power of a million suns hurling his lightning bolts. And you get the areas of the different um, areas in the Mideast and the Far East that are turned to glass. It's not a real far cry from reality when you understand that when Solomon said the wisest man in all the world said that there's nothing new under the sun for that which will be has already been. And I can tell you, Tom that the greatest concern that you've already touched on, we got to get this, is that, that there is an affinity between supernatural evil entities and evil men. And when those two meet up, 
then the promise of world domination and control and the ability to bring it about is absolutely like frosting on the cake to these guys. It, that's right, and, it, and it's because, um, now I've always thought that part of it is because, you know, when, when, when men elevate themselves above the will of God, they start becoming uh, Luciferian. They want to be like God. They want to be worshipped. They want to be adored. Uh, they want people to admire them, and all of that fills their heart just like it did, uh, just like it did Lucifer, unless they remain humble. And humility, by the way, is one of the first steps towards putting on the armor of God, which we were talking about last week. So, um, but this brings us then to step three uh, down the rabbit hole of transgenics, and or through second, the looking glass, through the looking glass. Uh, isn't it interesting how many uh, of these metaphors are part of our folklore? Uh, and so much of that has, uh, has touched the human psyche down through history. When you're talking about the mythologies around the world that talk about how this happened at one time, uh, whether it was Sumerians or Hebrews or Hittites, Babylonians, uh, Assyrians, Egyptians, uh, Chinese, down through time this story is told over and over and over. But... But it's prophesied to happen again at the end of time when men's hearts fill them for fear for seeing those things that are coming upon the earth. And that's what we're talking about now. Are we at a point in time? Are we at the moment in time where we are literally witnessing the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah and Christ and, and other prophets who talked about at the end of time there would be this reinvention of the Nephilim? Uh, Maybe maybe we're not poised at the doorstep, Steve. Maybe we've already gone through it, and the public just isn't aware of it yet. Oh, I agree with that. And in the book of Esdras, it says that your women will give birth to monsters in the last days. And, you know, the, the word monsters is a pretty interesting word coming from a, one of those pseudepigraphal works. So it's not, you know, again, when you stated that the gates of hell would not prevail, Jesus quoting or being quoted in the Scripture, and the gates uh, upon this rock of faith, He'll build a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Up until the time that you spoke that, I had never put it into the concept of stargates, okay, ever. But it makes sense, because how can gates? Someone said, yeah, what are you going to do, get beat up with a picket fence? That's not what it means. It means that something that is coming through the gates is going to make ultimate war on the body of Christ and on the people of the living God, and that's what's going on right now as you and I are on this radio program on the 15th of, of February 2006. And i got to tell you something. We are, we are witnessing, Tom, some of the most astonishing fulfillments of Scripture that any generation has ever seen. And then, so I asked the other day, uh, when you're talking about um, stargates, or uh, another word would be portals, stargates you tend to, to put that uh, in the atmosphere or some other uh, something that's kind of removed from the sense that a human, a human, a person themselves could become a portal through which something travels. And when I asked you the other day if you believed that animals have uh, senses. Uh, beyond humans and different than humans, and that uh, maybe even the ability to see spirits, and you said yes, and we talked about uh, the biblical and scientific support uh, for that uh, thesis, and I then uh, insinuated, based on some information that I have received, that part of the emerging technology that uh, blends 
animals and humans. Could be something, Steve. That's uh, it. Could be that it's unintentional. It could be that that the persons who involve who are involved in this research uh, don't realize that they're being used, that they're being duped by superintelligent forces. On the other hand, it could be intentional. Men bringing themselves into league with super powerful forces, and in a way that is beyond anything that most people could um, could ever conceive. Well, yeah, it's one thing when it's Rosemary's baby, but I tell everybody, you know, not only did Rosemary have a baby, but there are a lot of uh, Rosemary's babies out there. And again, what's what's important is, and that means this, is that the transgenic progeny of hell's insertion into the end times now, they've grown up, and that's what we're dealing with. And, and I want you, Tom, tonight, because this is the third in the series that we're going to uh, make available to people if they'd like to have it all together, is I'd like you to get into the reality of what you said uh, on Monday night when we started this uh, or it's part two. But the angelic card in this is interesting because the combination of angels, the combination of human, human DNA, and then the combination of a technological development that are developments plural and you put all those things together and basically you've got the Borg on demonic steroids well you've got the Borg on demonic steroids but the thing to me is you, you it, it's very simple to see the biblical and historical precedent for this uh, in that it, anybody who wants to take the apocryphal and suedepigraphal and biblical text concerning the Gaborim and what happened will find right away that these fallen powerful uh, angels called watchers were not only involved in tinkering with human DNA, they were involved at the same time with tinkering animal DNA. And now we're living at a period in time where we're doing exactly the same thing. So whether we're duped or we're intentionally walking into this with our eyes wide open, we are reinventing what the Bible said would happen, would occur, that would mark uh, the end of times. And it's stunning, given what's happening in Iraq and all these other places we were talking about last week. Now, have you ever noticed, Steve, that even guys uh, who would not look at this necessarily from a biblical worldview like you and I do, but guys like Jacques Vallée, have noted with regard to uh, what they what he thinks, you know, he they refer to him as aliens because that's the popular term, uh, but um, that he sees them as being identical to. Uh, historical demons. Absolutely, and he's a non-Christian. He's a non-Christian. I don't even know what he is. I mean, he may not have any particular uh, religious faith. I've seen pictures of him with, uh, you know, Anton LaVey. At the <laughs> right. Well, I think that the, the point is is that we're trying to draw the listeners' uh, attention to the fact is that there is no way to explain the phenomenon that has been manifested and repeated outside of putting it into a historic context of demonism, just like Whitley Strieber's book, Contact. Right. right. And so these guys also recognize uh, that even though they're not looking at this from a biblical point of view, that, that whatever this phenomenon is, to them, smacks of the same thing as the Bible describes as the watchers, the demons, who came down and used human DNA for, for their own breeding purposes. Now, a valet, he wrote in the Invisible College something, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring this out because it has to do with where we need to go. Well, he talked about that in order to materialize that these entities that we talk about as aliens or demons or whatever, he said in order to materialize, they seem to require 
uh, a source of energy. Uh, he called it vital energy, a fire, a living thing, uh, a plant, a tree, water, a human medium, something, some kind of living uh, molecular energy which they then could use to reconstruct into some kind of, of physical form. And Valet went on to say that, that that was, in his opinion, why uh, dogs and animals and cows and things like that either tend to turn up with parts of them missing or they vanish altogether in these UFO flap areas where there's a lot of UFOs. And it was his opinion, and, and, and a lot of other uh, researchers like John Keel, people like that, it was their opinion that these uh, extraterrestrials or ultra-terrestrials, um, that, that perhaps they need living cells. Uh, they need some kind of genetic uh, material, and they might be getting that from these animals or whatever in order to produce somehow for themselves uh, a form which we then can see in our three-dimensional reality. Well, when you, when you, when you take all the, these experts in ufology have written, and then you just go back through time and you look at leaders of the church and what they've written in terms of, uh, demonology, go all the way back to 1629, where uh, Adam Tanner wrote in the Tracticus Theologicus, and he's talking about, uh, the morphogenesis of demons and how demons can, uh, take on form. And he goes into this big long thing about how they need, uh, uh, impure air, dirty air, or vapor, or uh, clouds, uh, or sometimes he said they'll they'll take water and then they add to that earth, or mud, or sulfur, uh, or resin, or wood. Uh, some, he said sometimes they'll even take bones from corpses or animals, um, dead, condemned people. Uh, he said sometimes they'll even take semen from dead beasts and men, and and that kind of thing, and then they form for themselves. Uh, morphogenesis. They form for themselves some kind of body uh, in which they can incarnate themselves into and then they become three-dimensional uh, and we can see them. So that when you look all through uh, the, the last uh, thousands of years, Steve, around the world, even in, in modern history, everybody continues to say the same thing, that, the, that these beings are real, they're intelligent, and they use genetic material to do something that is either supernatural uh, or that the, it, that this is a science, and of course this would be the secular way of looking at it, that this is a science that is beyond our level of understanding. Well, first of all, let's say this. It is beyond our level of understanding in one sense that God made barriers and boundaries for everything that he created. When the fallen angels of Genesis 6 rebelled, and not just the angels detailed in Genesis 6, but where Jesus was talking about seeing Lucifer fall like lightning, uh -huh. the, the point is, is that there has always been the presence of a supranatural, meaning above the natural, intelligence, as well as supernatural, uh, you know, what would you say, interjections or introductions into the human history, and now, you know, there are people, and I want to tell you something. I have been told, and based on three decades of studying this stuff, and people that know a lot more than I do, the bottom line is, is that this is all being done willingly with the same promise that the serpent made that, that they are going to become gods. And that is the total transformational process in their thinking 
that they shall be as gods with supernatural powers and supernatural abilities. government and military computers, including the Pentagon, NASA, Southcom, and Northcom lock onto the Q-Files, the same night Steve Quayle interviewed Tom Horn on his new book, The Araman Gate. The Araman Gate brings the reader face-to-face with the return of the Nephilim. Dr. Lynn Marzulli, best-selling author of The Nephilim Trilogy. Derek Gilbert from Watcher Magazine says cross Tom Clancy with Frank Peretti and you might get something close to The Araman Gate, the new supernatural techno-thriller from husband and wife authors Tom and Nita Horn. In the Araman Gate, Tom and Nita Horn, national spokespersons for Cloud 10 Pictures Movie Deceived, starring Louis Gossett Jr. and Judd Nelson, take you on an incredible journey to out-of-control technology, masquerading demons, and prophetic possibilities in the classic styles of Dean Koontz and John Saul. Learn for yourself why the Araman Gate is the number one all-time best-selling novel by VMI Publishers, endorsed by legendary ufologist Dr. I.D.E. Thomas, as well as over 45 five-star reviews. To order your copy of the Araman Gate and for a limited time receive a free gift with every purchase, log on to RaidersNewsUpdate.com. That's www.RaidersNewsUpdate.com. The Araman Gate. Some gates should not be opened. And what you and I were talking about last week is very important because it's a new paradigm in the thinking of uh, the interpretation of Nephilim theology, which has existed forever. But now we were talking about something wholly new last week in that uh, histo- uh, the, the history of the Nephilim talks about how the gods ruled over these major cities. And all that, that was true in Samaria. The Egyptian kings would go into the, the temple at Karnak and they would experience transmogrification and they would become a living deity. Now we've always interpreted that as being purely mythological, but now we're talking about something, Steve, that may mean there was something more there the, the entire time and that this is why when the when the prophets in the Bible themselves referred to some of these kings, they referred to them in language both as the king of a particular great city, but also they refer to them as Lucifer himself, as a as a demon power incarnate, the prince of Persia, a, a, a demonic force that's ruling over an entire uh, geographical area, but that who is hosted. Now, you know, we've always thought, okay, that means uh, possession, or they're referring to the, the influence that is behind the king, but now we're looking at a brand new paradigm that says maybe not. Maybe when the mythologies around the, around the world in various places referred to kings as being incarnated gods, the gods who came down and ruled over whole continents, whole countries, whole cities, um, I mean, uh, whole regions uh, 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 that, that we were yeah. talking about, the B'nai Elohim. Think about, think about this now. In the, in the interlinear Hebrew Bible, it says the B'nai Elohim saw the daughters of Adam, that they were fit extensions. That's what it says. Fit extensions. Uh, meaning, uh, I mean, we could even look at that, Steve, as meaning portals. Uh, so that so we're talking about the use of molecular energy 
to format a navigational dimensional pathway through which an entity could come into the earth. Now that now now we've talked about that for a long time. A lot of people have talked about that. I've written a great deal about it in Stargates, Ancient Rituals, and those invited through the portal. But maybe, Steve, it meant something a whole lot deeper than that. And which we alluded to on your last show. Did you ever notice uh, in Genesis 6, in that account, that there are two things there that are going on? There's the offspring of the Nephilim, which I just referred to. But equally important um, to that Genesis 6 story is it, ta- it, it there is the implication there that mature women, the angels came down, they saw women, they took them. They did something to them. Somehow they were changed. They were altered, according to the the implication here in the Hebrew, which I just read from the interlinear Hebrew Bible, or quoted from the interlinear Hebrew Bible. They were changed so that they could become fit extensions, fit hosts, through which these angelic forms could uh, incarnate themselves. Now, the other day I got to wondering, about something that has bugged me for a long time. It's in Genesis 10, and it concerns Nimrod. And it ta- because we have the we have the we have the natural uh, lineage of Nimrod. We can follow back, uh, you know, through Cush, all of that. We can follow back uh, the lineage of Nimrod. But in Genesis 10, it says Nimrod began began to be. A mighty one. Now, <clears throat> I, 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 that, is that word "mighty one" in the Hebrew? Uh, a mighty, a gabora, a gabora. Uh, actually, that I, I've been told by a rabbi that's a giborim or a gibora, giborim, one who is like the giants. Whenever you have the I M on the end of it, as you know, uh-huh. it means one who is like the mighty ones. Well, so some, you're saying something changed him, and that's the reason why across the board. Scholars routinely interpret the word Gabor uh, as the same thing as a giant, same thing as a Nephilim. But did you ever notice that he began? Now that, that's the word that Kalal. And if you do a word study, there, very enlightening. And I would want to encourage any of your listeners to, to, to take that text, take it apart, do a word study from the from the Hebrew, because the verb there indicates, Steve, the beginning of profaning oneself or defiling oneself either sexually or ritually. And it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a stunning word there. It's a stunning word because it implies all this stuff about almost like a cult uh, ritual. Well, right. Every, everything that is, you're talking about in, in the past tense is incorporated into uh, satanic rituals right now or very deep uh, rituals. By the way, there are a lot of my listeners who have come out of the occult, like Henry and stuff, and I just want to give you something because this is relevant. He says, Steve, as a former spiritist medium, now saved, I've experienced invisible intelligent entities moving through and into my body, the feeling being like a fluid tingling with an electrical charge. These entities fled at the name of Jesus. Oh, well, thank God. Yeah, so thank you, uh, you know, Nori, for sending that. But the point is, is that, you know, you're saying something that's amazing. Something changed Nimrod. Nimrod was one thing, and by the way, history records he was a giant in stature. 
Well, another thing, I mean, we're, we're, when you're talking about the, the, the Genesis text, you're talking about women who were mature. The angels came down, they saw them. What happened? How did these women become fit extensions? Something occurred with these women at the genetic level. They were genetically altered. Somehow they became something then through which these beings could uh, incarnate themselves. What we're talking about, Steve, is transgenic science. And according to the apocryphal books, it was a blending of animal and human uh, genetic material that altered these beings in some way, these humans in some way, that now then they became something different than what God created. They become something altogether different that became a fit extension. Now, I never, I never read into the life of Nimrod that at some point in time, because we don't have the story, that something happened that changed him until I, until I read that verse that day, and I, and of course I've read it, I don't know how many times I've read it, you know, hundreds of times. But suddenly that word leaped out at me. He began to be a mighty. He began to be a mighty. And I thought, now wait a minute, is that just a, is that a King James uh, thing there? I mean, is there, is there a, a different interpretation here that might not imply that during the course of Nimrod's life, he made decisions somehow, or something happened, where suddenly he was changed. He began to become something else. And that's exactly what that uh, Genesis 10 says. He began to be a mighty. Um, in other words, that text could read, Nimrod began to become a Nephilim. Now, we don't, we don't have the record, but here's what we do have. That immediately following the reference that Nimrod began to become a, a Nephilim, something happened. And it's so astounding that it, 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 oh my gosh, it's a whole book all in itself, Steve. Maybe me and you are going to have to read, uh, write it. Oh, I, I listen, Tom, I gotta tell you, I've gotten, and by the way, Michael Heiser takes the position that, you know, Gibberim only is referred in Genesis 6-4, and, and I disagree with Michael Heiser openly, and, you know, you and I have talked about this, because, again, some of the pseudepigraphal works, but when I've talked to uh, some incredibly well-placed, I'm talking old guys with beards, they have told me that that word Giborium or Giborah is always used in that context. So somebody just sent me an email saying, Heiser says this. Well, I don't care what, what he says. I disagree with him. You know? Well, and we can all disagree. Heiser's a friend of yours and mine, and, and uh, he knows we disagree with him on some of these issues, and he disagrees with us. That's fine. Uh, that's what, that's what uh, scholarship is about. It's a study. It's challenging. But the point is, there are many scholars around the world, many scholars around the world, who believe that when you're talking about this word Gabori, you are talking about the same beings who are interpreted in the Bible as uh, the Nephilim. Now, so, it, it, whether a person wants to accept this or not, it, it, it's not going to offend me. But just assume for a moment, assume for a moment. Again, Tom, I don't know what you're doing, but you're, I don't know if you're turning away from your mic, but I'm getting emails saying you're fading in and out, so stay focused with your mic. Or are you talking just into a regular phone? I am very sorry. There you go. Right there is good sound. Okay. Okay. Uh, it could be that sometimes if I start talking too fast, I might be overpowering. Um, right, you're overdriving a little bit, but just just continue on. Because, again, this is too important. This is going to be put on uh, you know, or memorialized on a CD, so we've got to make okay. sure, okay? Okay, we're going to get there. Yep. 
So now, what are we talking about? Are we talking about a record of a mature human, not not an embryo that was changed at the germline level and that later on became something different? Are we talking about a mature, living human who, for whatever reason, somehow agreed to be altered at the genetic level? Now, I, I want your listeners to study this text for themselves because I did it and I tried to be open-minded and it seemed to me that, that whether it could be proved or not, you could certainly make the case. You could make the case and still be a good student of biblical interpretation that Nimrod had somehow agreed or had somehow allowed himself to be altered so that he began to become something different than a normal human. Now, just assume for a moment that that's true. If it is, there are some astounding things, uh, Steve, that could be implied uh, that also seem to be uh, supported by the rest of the story of Nimrod and that also seem to be uh, applicable to what we see happening in the world today. Number one, that prevenient grace is available to all humans. Prevenient grace is a theological term that means before you ever came to God, God was already calling you. But that there could be sins beyond which there is no recovery. Um, in this case, in Nimrod's case, the willingness to become transgenically altered would be a step beyond which you could never be, you could not be recovered. Now, there, there, there's a lot of reasons to believe that that, uh, that transgenic alteration, genetic modification of a human, but in particular transgenic alteration of a human, meaning that now we are blending your DNA beyond the species barrier, whether we're talking about adding plants or animals or some other kind of uh, living organism is now becoming part of you, and you are no longer a human as God made you. There's reasons to believe that that could be an unforgivable sin. And the, the, the reason that I'm saying this is because, uh, and, and, and I'm just going to give this really quickly because I'm, I'm committed to getting this done tonight. But when God made the human race, he stood back, this is the Hebrew word, he said, it is ta'ud, ta'ud. It's exactly what I want it to be, but, it's, but it means more than that. It means this, this creature is different than all of the other living organisms. This creature can be a host for the Holy Spirit. This can be a tabernacle of my spirit, and that's supported in the Old and New Testament, where the Bible tells us that, no, you're not, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that being changed at a molecular level, changed at a molecular level, maybe now you are no longer qualified to be the host of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've just become qualified to become the host of fallen spirits. Number two, and, 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 and once again, I'm talking something here way beyond demon possession. I'm talking about incarnation. Number two, these, these beings of the Old Testament, uh, we don't have the full story of Nimrod, but we do have the full story of a lot of the other Nephilim. And these beings killed without remorse, uh, like a lion might eat you 
<laughs> you know, and not necessarily well, because these guys were chomping down on everybody too. I mean, they were cannibals. They killed to eat. They absolutely devastated the creation of God. And yet they came from humans, but they came from a blend. Right. So what happened? What that, what that tells me, Steve, is it implies that it is no longer ta'ud, suitable to be the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit, because the consciousness of God, God consciousness, you remember where the Apostle Paul talks about the, uh, talks about the heathen. And he said, even those people who did not receive the law became a law to themselves. Their conscience, either uh, excusing or including or whatever, the things that were permissible or not permissible. Remember when he's talking about that? Yep. And, and that tells us that when we are made in the image of God, we are given this conscience. And now we can work against the conscience, we can dull the conscience, which the Bible tells us we actually have to do, in order to do, commit certain kinds of sins, that our conscience has to become dull in order for us to do it. We can rebel against it, but it's there. It's there, it's part of us, in a way that the animal kingdom does not have. Now, when the, when the Nephilim were involving this transgenic science, where they were taking animals and humans, they were creating an they were creating a being that was a suitable host for fallen spirits. But these these are these are powers now that have absolutely no conscience in terms of their ability to kill the creation of God, and maybe not even maybe even worse than that. Maybe they take and and forgive this phrase, but maybe they take an orgasmic pleasure in destroying the things that God would uh, love, the things that God would consider holy. And did you ever wonder why, in the book of Revelation, when it talks about the end of times, and now we're, it's a, there's all this cataclysmic stuff that's happening uh, all around the world, that all of these Christians, all of these people, can be beheaded, I mean, t treated in such inhumanity, way beyond anything that uh, Nazi Germany or anybody else ever did in terms of their callousness towards human life. Now, when you couple that with the predictions that there will be a return of the Nephilim in the end of time, Steve, your, 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 your guy's uh, article there, the Pentagon plans to create mutant super soldiers, we could be talking about something entirely deeper than what most people are, are uh, ready uh, ha to uh, handle or to prepare. Well, absolutely, and their battle cry will be, we're back, you know. We're and, back. Yep, and, and I'm not being facetious. I don't mean to sound smart-alecky. You know, this is something, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of people out there that criticize when we talk about stuff like that, that this is science fiction. This is history. And when you've spent 35 years of your life, and, Tom, you've spent all your life as a Christian and as a former pastor studying this stuff. You know, the point is is that you can't deny that there's something there. And so to the critics, you know, all I can say is this. You will see the very thing you mock, and that which you mock will destroy you, because in your mocking, you've already given yourself over to the evil one. You've become the accuser of the brethren. And what you're talking about in the Revelation scenario is it says that these entities become drunk, drunk, intoxicated yeah. with the blood of the saints. Right. Now, let me go quickly, because I know we're going to run out of time, and I'm, I'm committed to finishing this. It also appears from the ancient record that the watchers uh, were not only trying to do everything I've already said, 
but they were trying to get back something that could have been lost in the fall of man, which this could have actually been the greatest sin they were committing against God, because in the fall of man, uh, Adam and Eve, were they become something less than what they were. Now, they were still suitable hosts for the Spirit of God, but they certainly were not what they had been before the fall. And when you think about God giving Adam and Eve the responsibility, the custodianship of overseeing the entire earth, they certainly, Steve, I can't even take care of mowing my lawn. I mean, <laughs> these, they had to be something far in, uh, superior to what we are uh, today. Now, I don't even have time to develop all this, but I remember years ago sitting uh, in a conference, one of the guys that I, I loved him, I just loved him dearly, and he's still a friend of mine today, Dr. Bob Cornwall. He was one of the greatest thinkers I've ever uh, heard talk. And I remember him getting up and giving, giving a lecture on original man, and he talked about the diaphonetic marks that were applied to the name of Adam before the fall and how those marks appear, disappeared uh, after the fall of Adam and, and were not applied to a human again until it refers to Christ in the New Testament as a second Adam. And, and so he went into this long, detailed discussion about what original man was and then what he was after the fall and, and how that could be recovered in Christ. And I remember when he was done taking that information and writing it down, and I was pastoring at the time, and my youth uh, pastor was uh, attending a university, a Bible college, and I gave him that material, he took it to his college professor, and that college professor verified that uh, what Dr. Cornwall was talking about was true, and that, that these diaphanetic marks and these other little marks that were applied to the original name of Adam had to do with Adam's godlike abilities of a sight, uh, his ability to see as God sees, that's how Cornwall describes it. And to know as God knows, like the, the intuitive sense of Adam was phenomenal. And also to be able to speak as God speaks. And I remember Dr. Cornwall talking about these examples uh, in the Bible of God temporarily giving these abilities to men at a particular time uh, when they needed them, such as letting Noah have the ability to speak to the animals. The animals understood him. But, but it was not something now that men had. And, uh, and I remember following up uh, with what Cornwall had been talking about with my own studies. And, I, and, I, you know, and, and so then it gave me a whole brand new light as I was looking at Christ and how Christ... Now, something that you, the listeners need to remember is that Christ set aside his, uh, his godness, uh, for want of a better term. He became a man. Paul says that. He, he took upon himself the form of a man. He limited himself to being a man. However, he was an unfallen man. And look at what unfallen man could do. He could speak to the sea. He could speak to the wind that it would obey him. He could curse a tree and say, No man shall eat fruit of thee from henceforth forevermore. And the tree would wither up and die. He could say, These rocks are going to cry out. So what, what original man was before the fall was something entirely different than what we see today. Now, notice, after Nimrod began becoming, a Gaborim. And something was happening to him. That in, uh, that in Genesis 11, the story is told of the Tower of Babel, where uh, it says that he, you know, this was the beginning of his uh, empire, and it says that he, he wanted to build a tower whose top would reach into heaven, Shemayim. And that when the Lord came down and saw what was happening, he said, nothing 
will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Now, Steve, and I, we may have talked about this before, but that comment always seemed curious to me. If the meaning there was only that this tower was reaching way up into the sky, because there have been all kinds of towers that have been built that reach way up uh, into the sky. But it, it doesn't say that. It says it was reaching in a different, was going into a realm. In other words, it was, you know, who knows? It, it was, you know, maybe a right angle into a portal. I don't know, but what I do know is that when he said he would build a tower, he was at that moment a Gaborum. He was something different. Now, was it, was it part of the effort of watchers and their altering of, of, of the genetic code was part of the great sin which they created against God? And effort, because remember, they, they were driven by this, this, this quest that said, Specifically, I will exalt my throne above the throne of God. Now, how close to the surface of the earth is the dwelling place of angels, of demons, of God? I'm asking that because, you know, in human nature, in our psyche, we tend to place, uh, for want of a better term, the location of uh, the domain of the dwelling place of God somewhere way out into outer space. But what if the heavens are so close as to have been reached upon the top of the Tower of Babel, the top of tall mountains? Um, the Nephilim had intimate knowledge because they were connected to the watchers who had been part of the powerful angelic realm in heaven before the fall. So they had intimate knowledge of the original earth before the heavens were closed, when God walked in the cool of the evening and came down and was with Adam and Eve, did the Nephilim, as offspring of fallen angels, did they know something about the periphery of the cosmos and of the throne room of God that we don't know uh, today? Did they know uh, in some way that these locations are, are, are really not that far above uh, the surface of the earth? And is that why, down through time, uh, scriptural and extra-biblical literature universally depicts these metaphors of heaven that are attained upon elevated platforms, whether it's Jacob's Ladder, Quetzalcoatl's Ladder, uh, the gods upon the Mount of Olympus, uh, the feet of the returning Christ upon the Mount of Olives, uh, Moses receiving the law from God upon Sinai, the watchers descending upon Mount Hebron. Is that the reason why, Steve, that Nimrod and Nephilim built the Tower of Babel, whose top would reach into Shemayim, and God himself said, nothing shall be restrained from them which they have determined to do. Now, your, your friend and my friend, Stan Deo, has done some analysis of a Tower of Babel uh, stele, uh, with some speculation about whether the original Tower of Babel was actually designed to facilitate reaching into heaven. Was this a building whose top was high enough to allow these rebels to actually think that they were going to ascend into the the, the throne room of God and challenge Him. Um, was it was it something that allowed higher dimensional beings to descend? While and, and, you know, of course, Dan he's a scientist and I'm not. He talks about discharging voltage, you know, and <laughs> how the, the Tower of Babel, uh, at least in this one stele, uh, seems to be designed so that the, the edges of it are smooth, like a, a high voltage uh, insulator, which might have been created for dissipating electricity, uh, and, and 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 all of that. And of course, Dan will tell you himself that that's just uh, you know that's just a cerebral. 
uh, experiment. There's nothing conclusive about it at all. It's just that when you're looking at the stele, you're trying to you're trying to interpret why was it uh, drawn the way it was. And the, and the opposite of that is also true. Not only could it have been uh, something that higher uh, uh, density uh, beings might have descended upon. And maybe uh, you know they're discharging all of this electrical uh, current, this uh, this electricity as they're coming down uh, off the top of this thing. Um, uh, but maybe that that connects to the uh, mythological stories of of you know like Zeus and other gods who were accompanied by fire and lightning. And then of course uh, you know Stan can 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 interpret this the other way that beings that ascend from lower uh, energy uh, densities tend to cool the atmosphere, like the, the classical ghost uh, coming into a room. But in any case, when you, when you, when you look at all of that, uh, I'm, and now I'm looking at the clock and I'm realizing we're running out of time again, but, but were we talking about beings who sins against God were not only horrendous in their day because their attempt was to 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 flaunt their power in the face of God. And Steve, are we talking about doing the same thing right now? Are there persons involved at the highest level in the development of transgenic beings and psychotronic warfare who have learned secrets about where stargates might be? Absolutely. Hey, Steve, turn down the music. Hey, Tom, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue this at some other point, but ladies and gentlemen, my very special thanks to Tom Horn, and we will be putting this out, and we'll probably have another time together. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. <laughs>